Okay, let's get started. Dave Vellante here. Uh, welcome again to the May 6, 2008 Wikibon Peer Insight. Uh, the topic for today is best practice in Oracle 11G remote replication. And today we're going to use an HP EVA example for continuous access. And it's my pleasure to tell you today that we have Tina Rose joining us. Tina is on the call and she's a senior systems engineer in HP's uh, CFT group. CFT stands for Customer Focused Testing, and we'll be talking a little bit about what that is today. Uh, Tina's been with HP since about 2002 and has almost 20 years uh, in the IT industry, primarily in technical roles, uh, things like programming, testing, networking, storage, and, and database administration. Her specialty is in Oracle solutions, uh, particularly on the EVA, with an extensive background in Microsoft and, and Linux operating systems. Now, you can go to wikibon.org at the homepage and under upcoming events, uh, under teleconferences, the second bullet there, there's a link to the bulletin board that we're using today. And at that link, if you click on that, you'll see uh, Remote Replication Peer Insight. And, and in there, you can read a little bit more about Tina's background, and you'll find a couple of slides that Tina is going to be referencing today. And as well, you'll find some detailed technical documentation uh, around the specific project that, that Tina ran um, in this area. Now, as many of you know, the format of, of the Peer Insight meeting is as follows. I, I'll moderate, and Tina is going to present her overview of the replication project and then share her advice uh, with uh, the customers that are on the call. Uh, this is an open forum. Anyone's welcome to participate and ask questions and, and have a voice. At the end of the meeting, I'll do a brief summary, uh, which we will post on Wikibon within a couple of hours, and we'll follow that summary up with additional analyses focused on the customer implications of what we heard. The meeting will last one hour and uh, is being recorded. So with that, I would like to turn the meeting over to Tina and welcome you, Tina, to, to Wikibon, and ask that maybe you start by telling us a little bit about what CFT is and your role there, and, and then jump into the project and, and what the motivation was and, and uh, what you learned. Welcome. Great. Thank you. We are glad to be here today. This is actually one of the first Wikibons that we have done, so I'm pretty excited about this. I actually have a couple of my coworkers on the line, so they might be able to help me answer additional questions I might get from the audience. We, customer focused testing is an engineering group within the Storage Works division at Hewlett Packard. Our engineers are located here in Colorado Springs, and we also have an engineering division in France outside of Nice. We specialize in four applications, Oracle, Exchange, SQL Server, and SAP. Of course, I belong to the Oracle team, but we have solutions across all four of these portfolios. And really what we're trying to do is help customers maximize their solutions when they purchase storage, when they purchase servers. You know, that's usually the easy part. The hard part is I need to put a heavy application on top of that. What's the best way to configure that? So we do configuration and sizing best practices. We do backup and recovery best practices. And then, of course, we also do disaster recovery, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Within the Oracle portfolio, we have a lot of expertise across the board um, from 8i, 9i, of course, 10g. We were beta partners with 11g, so we're very well versed with 11g. 
We utilize a lot of Oracle solutions in our projects like ASM, RMAN, RAC, DataGuard, Grid Control. We have projects built around all of these solutions. We also do projects across our server platform. So if you're familiar with the HP servers, we do integrity solutions, we do ProLiant solutions, and Blades. We've also done some Superdome projects in the past. We traditionally in the past have specialized on our high-end storage arrays, which is our XP and our EVA line, but we're starting to get into the SMB market, so our team is targeting new solutions around the MSA 2000 and the EVA 4400, again, if you're familiar with our product line. We also utilize a lot of management software in our solutions like OpenView, Systems Insight Manager, those sort of solutions, and we actually use them in some of our diagnostics and testing. Typically, an engineer is assigned a project in our team, and They'll do their testing, and at the conclusion of their project, they have several deliverables. One is a white paper. So we have numerous published white papers, and you can go out to our website and see that. I have a link, um, I think, on the Wikibon site to our website. In case anyone wants to jot it down, I'll give it to you really quick. It's www.hp.com forward slash go forward slash HPCFP. And on that website, you're going to see links to all of our white papers. We also have recorded webinars. So all of these projects that we have done, we have a webinar that you can watch at your own leisure. And it's a, pretty much what we would present in person, you know, the whole slide deck's out there, and then, of course, the engineer giving the presentation. And we also do technical forums in which we invite customers to our site in Colorado Springs and they get the unique opportunity to engage with the engineers, which is you know, something really customers don't usually get a lot of access to. And so we can bring customers to our site, and the engineers themselves will present their data directly to the customers. Those events we hold several times a year, and they're actually a lot, a lot of fun. So just finally to summarize what we do in general, just some of the solutions we've been working on, we do... Um, backup and recovery solutions like Net Backup or Data Protector, we have solutions built around those. We've done replication solutions, which of course is what I'm going to talk about today. We've also uh, recently completed some new solutions, uh, 11G New Features solution. We just finished and just published that white paper recently. We also have a scale-out solution on Blades. That white paper is in the process of being written and should be published shortly. And we've also done best practices on the storage array for multiple databases. So if you have multiple databases, what's the best way to lay out your storage and where should those files reside? That white paper has also just finished and hopefully will be posted recently. So hopefully that gives you a good overview of what our team does in general. And so now I'd like to go ahead and dive straight into the project that we just recently completed. So we're looking at a replication solution for high availability, and we are talking disaster recovery. We built the first solution around array-based replication, which, of course, a lot of storage vendors have. There's nothing new with array-based replication. We're just showing you how to apply it to an application such as Oracle. Now, we've done this project, again, if you're familiar with our storage line, we've actually done this project on both the EVA 
and the XP storage array. And one of my coworkers, Brad Baker, is actually on this phone call, and he did the exact same project I'm presenting right now on the XP. So if I get any questions specific to the XP, perhaps he can jump in. But again, so we're looking at an array-based replication solution. And of course, we realize there's other solutions available for you, such as DataGuard, which would be a software-based replication solution. And actually, if you have me back in six months, I'll be able to present that project to you because the very next project I'm about to start is a DataGuard project on the EVA 8100 to be exact. The project with Continuous Access, which of course is the array-based replication solution for the EVA, was actually a two-phase project. And I'm here today to present the first phase of that project. The first phase is a total understanding of replication concepts. It's kind of Replication 101. You really need to understand terminology such as RPO, RTO. You need to understand bandwidth, latency, distance, workload. And that's the heavy emphasis of this project. And then, of course, we get into the two types of replication, which are generally synchronous and asynchronous replication. And then finally, we actually show you those results, which if you go out to the Wikibon website, that that is the, one of the two slides that David was referring to. I actually have the results out there from my synchronous and asynchronous testing for you to look at. So by all means, please go and check that out while I'm speaking today. So again, Tina, just for those of you who didn't hear, perhaps it's on the, if you go to the homepage on wikibon.org, you'll see the bulletin board under events. It's, it's, it's in there, and uh, it's called the Remote Replication Peer Insight, and there are a couple of thumbnail graphics that you can look at. Right, so I included two slides from my presentation, and my presentation is close to 50 slides. So um, the, this might be a bit difficult to squeeze everything into this hour, but I will definitely give it, give it a shot. If you look at the first slide we have posted out on the Wikibon site, it's just an overview of my configuration for Phase 1. And I'm using uh, array-based replication from an EVA to an EVA. I'm replicating a two-node rack database using ASM. This was 11G. And I'm actually replicating that to a single instance database at our backup site, merely just to show you that you can. Um, it was actually kind of fun. There's a few little tricks you have to do to get the single instance database up at your failover site. I chose to do the solution Fiber Channel over IP. So I'm actually doing an FC over IP solution, and that way I've got a network generator in my environment so I can really control and constrain the bandwidth so I can emulate different, uh, different bandwidths such as a T3, an OC12, et cetera. So I have that in my environment. This particular project was done on an OC6, and if you don't understand that terminology, I'll cover it here, cover it here briefly. So again, this was phase one, which is completed. Phase Two, which I just recently completed, I'm actually in the process of writing that white paper. Phase two is the actual failover and failback scenarios. So we actually do some pretty severe failures on the EVA, crash the entire primary site, fail it over to the primary site, open up the database, and prove you have no data loss and synchronous replication. We also do some fun stuff with link suspending and resuming in phase two. And again, that project is currently being written up, and we should have that published within the month. But back to the first solution here, phase one. Just some basic information as far as our configuration. Of course, like I mentioned, this was 11G. 
done on ProLiant servers. If you're familiar with our, our line, this was a DL580. We did this solution on Red Hat Linux. That's something that probably surprises a lot of people um, since we're Hewlett-Packard, don't we do all our solutions on HPUX? And the answer to that is no, not necessarily. We actually um, do projects across some of the most popular operating systems um, to include HPUX, Linux, and Windows. So all the projects we do in our group are on one of those three operating systems. So moving on, there's a couple key terms we really have to understand before we can even begin to think of a replication solution, and that are the two types of replication. Now, depending on if you're using DataGuard, their terminology is a little bit different, high availability, high performance. If you're on an XP storage array, they have things called async journaling. Essentially, it gets down to two core concepts, synchronous and asynchronous. With synchronous replication, the, the database server is going to send an I.O. request to its local storage array. That storage array then has to replicate the data all the way to the distance array and back. And then and only then can the next I.O. go down the stream. So depending how, I don't want to use the term distance, but depending how far away that array is, how much latency is on that link, the kind of bandwidth it has to go through, that may or may not be a significant bottleneck to the performance of the application. However, synchronous replication is going to be a requirement if you desire zero data loss. And we'll talk about RPO and RTO here in a minute. So that is one solution to synchronous replication. On the flip side of that is asynchronous replication. Asynchronous replication, the database server sends the I.O. request to its local array and is immediately receives a reply from it and can then immediately send the next I.O. request. Now on the back end, those requests may or may not have been replicated to the destination array yet. Again, depends on latency, link, et cetera, and workload. So with asynchronous replication, the application is not going to see any performance degradation. And you're actually going to see that really clearly on the results that I'm going to show you on the second slide. However, you do put yourself at a greater risk of data loss. Now, how much loss that might be, of course, is going to depend on your workload, your link, your bandwidth, et cetera. But I just want to point out, at a high level, those two concepts of replication. Now, in determining how you might want to set up your replication environment, one of the biggest factors is going to be recovery point objective. And now I've seen some previous Wikibons on these topics, so if you obviously have attended those before, this will be a bit of a repeat for you. But at a really basic level, recovery point objective refers to the amount of data a customer can tolerate to lose. And so you might immediately want to say, well, I can tolerate zero data loss. I don't want to lose anything. Well, that's fine, but you have to understand the implications of that, which is going to be a synchronous replication solution. And again, you, you have to remember that when we're talking array-based replication, high availability, we're really talking about a disaster scenario in which your primary site is, is not merely offline. It, it might have been destroyed in a natural disaster, for example. And when it's put into that perspective, sometimes customers get a little more realistic with their recovery point objectives. 
And it can be anywhere from 15 minutes to two hours to eight hours. There's really nothing to define it for a customer. A customer is really going to need to be, have to define that themselves based on the business rules that govern their environments. Now, we still have customers that have an absolute requirement of zero data loss. There's just nothing they can do. They're constrained by their business rules. And that's fine. It's going to drive a synchronous replication solution, and then you have to understand the implications of that. On the flip side, the recovery point objective is recovery time objective. Recovery time objective refers to how long it takes you to get your destination site up and running after disaster. Um, is that site staffed full time, or do you have to physically get people to that site? How long does it take to fail the LUNs over? How does, long does it take to redirect the applications over, et cetera? This is really a, a point that I really delve deeply into the second phase of this project. And to be honest, in, in the solution that I have, if you have the backup site completely pre-staged with a database up and running, with the LUNs presented, and it's staffed on site, we typically got the recovery time objective to under 10 minutes. So in a disaster scenario, fail everything over to the recovery destination site, um, you know, reboot the databases and everything's up and running. You know, that can be very important to customers, but again, that's going to take a lot of money because it requires pre-staging, requires licensing, it requires that site be staffed with personnel. And again, that's something that only the customer can decide with their business rules. So that pretty much, unless there's any questions so far, I think really the only other um, three main points I want to discuss are bandwidth, latency, and the workload. Now first and foremost is you have to know what your workload is before you can even consider starting a replication solution. And that's really not difficult, especially if you're running EVA, because you can run an EVA performance tool called EVA Perf. And you'll want to run it during your prime workload time so you can get an example of what your highest peak workload is. Perhaps this is during end-of-month reporting. You have to know what the workload is on the array for the application you're going to replicate. And of course, it's also important to know that you only really need to focus on the right workload of that application. So if you have an OLTP application, which is 60-40 read-writes, the reads aren't replicated. So we don't need to worry about the reads. What we really need to focus on is what is the right workload of that array because the writes are going to be replicated. Again, this is something you can do really easily with EVA Perf. So in this particular project, we had a write workload which kind of averaged around, you know, I don't have my notes in front of me, I want to say around 350 megabits per second. So we deliberately chose to use an OC link. And if you're familiar with various link speeds, an OC6 link is capable of 310 megabits per second. So I deliberately undersized my link because I want to show you the impact of an undersized link with a replication workload that is way too great for it. So that was all deliberate. Um, we could have chosen any link size, of course, like I mentioned before, I have a network generator in there. I also did some testing with full 4 gigabit fiber, so maybe you are replicating merely across the data center or across 
the building that your site is located at, you possibly have fiber run the whole way. So if you're replicating over full 4 gigabit fiber, your results are going to be very different than having to squeeze through an OC6 link. And I even tested an OC9 link to show you the difference that that would have on our workload. And then finally, really the biggest factor in a replication solution is latency. And I know a lot of customers typically like to focus on distance. The first thing they, they say when they come to me is, I want to replicate my data center 500 miles away. And I'm like, okay, that's great. That's going to help me determine what the platform and protocols you're going to be using. But latency is what I really want to know. How long does it take round trip to get that data there and back? And then you can, that can be accomplished with something as simple as a ping. But latency is important to know because if you have a high latency, and typically anything above 20 milliseconds starts to get into a high area, that's going to degrade your performance, especially if you're in synchronous replication. Now we tested in the project I did uh, 0, 20, and 100 milliseconds. Now to be perfectly honest, if you have 100 milliseconds latency on your link, you probably aren't a good replication candidate at all. But I'm going to show you those results in, our, in the solution when we get to the best practices and the impact that that had, especially on synchronous replication, because it's going to seriously degrade the performance of the database. So let's go ahead and jump straight to the hey, results. Hey, yeah, hey, go ahead. Can I interrupt you for a second? Mm-hmm. Just a couple questions on the configuration. So th this work took place when? Uh, last year, this year? Um, let me think. This was phase one. I want to say I finished this probably last November or December. Okay. So this was... Um, an 11G, you know, replication solution between the two EVA 8000s. Okay, so you had uh, what a two controller configuration? Um, per right? EVA, I mean yeah. the the EVAs, yes, are are dual controller. Each controller has four ports coming out the back end, so there's actually eight ports into the EVA 8000. And I guess I didn't even mention that, but that's also important to know is what is the HBA port count coming out of the database servers? Um, it just so happens that I was using four dual-channel HBAs in each of my Oracle Rack database servers. So each database server had eight ports going out. EVA 8000 has eight ports coming out. So that's a total of 64 possible paths that the I.O. can take to get to the virtual disk. Okay, and then how many devices did you have at the back end? The it's, disks? Uh, how many um, disks? I had two ASM disk groups, and this actually is an interesting question because it kind of gets into the very first project I ever did on this team, which was ASM best, best practices on the EVA 8000. What's the best way to configure the EVA? Should I have one big disk group? Should I have two disk groups? Should I have a, 10 little disk groups? And generally the best practice for a database application is to have two disk groups if you have enough spindles for it, which a fully loaded EVA 8000 does. It would have 168 drives. So typically in that scenario, I have two disk groups on the EVA. In my main disk group, I put the bulk of the drives, 136 drives. And in that disk group, I had four virtual disks or four LUNs that I presented to the database to an ASM disk group. And that is used to stripe the data files across the online redo logs and files of that nature. In my backup disk group, it's a little bit smaller. I think I had about 32 drives in it. 
and I had four LUNs presented to the second ASM disk group. And that was my backup disk group. So that's where my archive logs are going. The flashback area was configured. And if you happen to be using RMAN, typically RMAN backups would go into that disk group. Okay, and so these were, uh, what, uh, 15K drives? Uh, yes. So in this solution, my array happens to be fully populated with 15K spindle drives. Now, of course, I understand that that's an expensive solution. And typically what we, we tell customers you can do is think about that backup disk group, that disk group where I put the 32 drives. That's just your archive logs and a few backups. That, to be honest, if you have a database sized properly, that disk group can be rarely utilized. If your online logs are sized appropriately, you may have a log switch only once every 20 minutes, and that's when the archive log gets written to in that backup disk group. Once every 20 minutes is not very frequent. So some customers find that they can save money in that disk group by utilizing maybe a 10K spindle, or maybe even utilizing RAID 5 in that disk group, whereas we typically would recommend RAID 1. Okay, so you'd use RAID 1 in the primary group and right, because on, RAID 5 in the secondary. Exactly, because on the EDA, of course, it's a truly virtualized array. So RAID 1 is really RAID 10, because not only is it doing the mirroring, it's a striping by default, because that's what the EVA does. Okay. And, and these were, again, uh, uh, 15K, were they 146 gigabyte devices? They were. They were the 146 gig drive. Okay, so, so it was a, 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 a high-performance workload, OLTP workload, is that correct? Yes. This particular uh, project was an OLTP workload, and we had the array under pretty, pretty good load. Now, now, did you do any tuning of the the, the database, and, and if so, what did you what did you achieve there? We did. Um, there, there's always a, of course, the very first part of our project is preliminary testing, where a lot of the tuning takes place. A lot of things that we do in that area, of course, we optimize the Oracle database for an OLTP workload. That can include things like having the multi-block read count. You know, typically, we set that lower for an OLTP workload, um, like around 8. And we also do some things with the optimizer index par initialization parameters. We do change those values by default. They're, they're really more tuned for a DSS environment, so we make changes to those as well. There's um, another parameter. Be our, our benchmarking we do is with a third-party tool. Um, I'm not uh, sure if you're familiar with the product. It's called uh, Benchmark Factory for databases. It's by Quest Software. It can run a lot of industry standard benchmarks, so we don't really have control over the SQL that it runs. And one of the things we found we had to do with this particular workload is change the cursor sharing to force. And that's typically not something you would do um, unless you have no control or um, can rewrite the SQL. So that's another tuning that we did uh, also, the online redo logs, and that's actually um, something that I point out in the project that I did. The size of the online redo logs can affect your replication performance. It's actually very interesting. We might be able to talk about that a little bit later. But so that's yet another area that we tuned. And you know, to be honest, this is a lot of this is just basic DBA tuning. And we, you know, we benchmarked the workload before any of this tuning, and then we benchmarked the workload again after I made these little tweaks. And we got about a 16% performance increase just by doing some basic DBA tuning. That was 1.6? Uh, six? Yeah, 16. Okay. All right, great. So um, 
let me just stop and see if anybody has any other questions on the basic configuration or before we get into the best practice. Any any questions or comments at this point? Uh, this is John Blackman. I have a question. Um, when you're talking about synchronous and asynchronous replication regarding this, uh, now knowing that you're doing a, a RIG 1.0 strike, did you ever actually look at um, mirroring outside just the stripe set and then replicating the mirror to, in essence, achieve uh, both high availability and disaster recovery because the two are not the same? So are you talking having like a, some kind of a mirror clone of the uh, actual ones? Well, you were talking. Uh, you were talking a, a very highly available application. Mm -hmm. That's a tier one type application that require that requires in essence zero um, data loss. So, uh, um, trying to do a synchronous replication across most people's wide area networks, especially of a thousand miles in distance, is going to be probably very difficult to achieve using synchronous replication on the array. So did you ever do any testing doing a, a, in essence, what I call an intra-data center mirror and then replicate that uh, inter-data centers uh, asynchronously? So you're doing both synchronous and asynchronous basis, basis sure. forms of replication. And therefore, you wouldn't also have to uh, waste as many disks on your array except for the fact that you mentioned that your array uh, Performs better in a RAID 1.0 stripe than in a traditional RAID 5.6 uh, type configuration. So that's not a solution that we have yet tested in the in the team that I work for. However, I really appreciate your feedback on that because, if I'm not mistaken, I believe my business development manager is also on this phone call. And he's the person that decides what kind of solutions we do in the future. And the only thing that dr drives those solutions is you, the customer. So if okay. we get a lot of feedback that this is a very interesting scenario for you, I can almost guarantee this will be a future project that gets developed from my team. Well, it's, it's the only way, outside of doing software synchronization like with DataGuard, mm -hmm. it's the only way we would actually replicate data over those types of distances. Uh, for one, the application must stay in sync with the data. Oh, yeah. So how do you guarantee? So how do you guarantee it? Okay, right. um, and therefore with your RPO and RTO times, by having your local mirror um, and your async um, replication, you can actually achieve the async. You can offer standard service that that isn't okay. We can give you this and another person X and another person Y, right? So you mm -hmm. can actually uh, standardize. Um, SLA that works across all different types of applications and also then have a standardized solution. So I was just curious as to um, your uh, viewpoint uh, using uh, continuous data replication at the software layer versus trying to do it at the hardware layer. Right, and and so again, that, that's not anything that we have done yet, and it definitely was not done in this project. So. Um, I definitely don't have an answer for you, but I will get this information to my management team and see if that's not a future project I can work on. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you, John. That's, uh, that sounds like something that you would you would use at a, at a in a financial situation, which obviously you're you're from, and um, appreciate that. 
Okay, good. So, Tina, why why don't you share with us some of the more specific uh, best practices? You mentioned you know, redo logs, and, and, and I'm sure there are some other things that you wanted to touch upon, including performance uh, as it relates to synchronous um, and, and, and the impact thereof. So why don't you uh, take us into some of the, the, the best practice that you'd like to discuss? Sure. Well, first, let's Let's just jump straight to the second slide, which is the results from my testing. So if you're on the Wikibon site, you'll be able to see both the synchronous and the asynchronous results I've put into one slide. On the synchronous results, it's uh, identified by the blue line if you're looking at it. What I'm showing here is the effect of going from first, the first column is four gigabit fiber channel with virtually no latency on the link. This would be indicative of replicating across your data center. And you can see I'm doing around 7,000 transactions per second with this particular workload that I'm running. Now the reason I deliberately chose an OC6 link is because it is way too small for my workload. I did that on purpose so I could show you the impact of your infrastructure on the database performance if your pipe is too small for your workload. So just going from 4 gigabit down to an OC6, which is 310 megabit, my workload has dropped to under 6,000 transactions per second. Nothing else was changed with this workload. I'm just trying to push too much data through a pipe too small. And so I'm taking a performance hit here. Um, in my, and this is my, from my database's performance perspective. I've dropped about 18% performance-wise because I'm trying to replicate synchronously through a pipe that's too small. And, you know, that can be a significant impact to your environment, to your customers. Now, within the OC6, so of course we know that's already way too small, now I'm throwing latency at it. And so things are just going to get worse from here. So I go with the OC6, and now my next data point is with 20 milliseconds latency on that link. And you can see I drop again to close to 5,000 transactions per second. And then the final data point, and this is where, yes, we just got crazy, and we're like, well, let's see what happens with 100 milliseconds on the link. And we're trying to replicate through OC6, which is way too small, and synchronous replication. And, you know, my performance drops to almost 2,000 transactions per second. That's a 69% decrease in your database performance. And that's really what I'm trying to get across here with this project is understanding your environment, understanding your workload, understanding your bandwidth, and understanding your latency because this is how it could impact you in a synchronous solution. Now, of course, this is a little bit all doom and gloom because I'm deliberately using a pipe that's too small. So one of the things I did is I did some more testing. I'm like, okay, let's increase the bandwidth to an OC9. Don't change anything with the workload. I tested the 0 and the 20 millisecond latency and reran the workload through an OC9 pipe. OC9 increased my transactions per second from around 5,800 to a little, over, um, a little close to 6,800. So I had 1,000 transactions per second increase merely by increasing the bandwidth on my link. And now I'm around 6,800 transactions per second. And actually what that tells me is the pipe is still just a little too small. 
because my baseline performance with the 4 gigabit bandwidth was around 7,000, 7,100 transactions per second. So this is all, um, by the way, this is all in my white paper, and I also, again, have a presentation with all the slides on our website. Um, you have, by all means, access to, to look at all of that in detail. So that the was other, about a, I'm sorry to interrupt, that, that was about a 17% improvement uh, with, by increasing the link from OC6 to OC9. Mm -hmm. Just right. increasing the bandwidth. Now again, that's only going to work for you if your bandwidth was too small to begin with. You might have an OC6 or even an OC3 at your site, and that might be more than enough bandwidth for your workload. That's why you absolutely have to know your workload before you start your replication solution. You have to have it characterized. Do you have any um, sort of suggestions for you know, you know, specking um, latency uh, so that it doesn't negatively impact performance, specifically with synchronous replication, or is that something you're going to get to? Well, I mean, you know, to a degree, especially if you have an FC over IP solution, there's probably not a whole lot you can do about the latency on the link. It depends how your telecommunication company has routed the link, how many routers it hits along the way. Um, so your latency is almost just an inherent part of the solution that you're going to have. So really, you need to build the solution around the latency that you have. And if you have latency that's, you know, above 20 milliseconds or higher, you're probably not a great candidate for synchronous replication, and you might need to look at the asynchronous replication. And that's actually okay. a great lead-in into the asynchronous results, which shown on the slide are the pink line, if that's a little bit clear to you. And this is probably one of the best test results I've ever gotten. That is practically a virtually flat line, and that is precisely what I expected to see with asynchronous replication. The database is not going to notice or be impacted by the latency or by the bandwidth or by anything in an asynchronous solution. And of course, you know, that looks great. Wow, your customers are going to be happy. You're at 69, 7,000 transactions per second, regardless of what you do behind the scenes. And of course, that's where we get into your risk of data loss. At 4 gigabit, we actually have no data loss. It's actually, we call this a near zero recovery point objective. There was literally nothing sitting in the queue waiting to be replicated. And that's possible over a high bandwidth like 4 gigabit with a low latency. Asynchronous replication can get you near zero RPO. But when you start to increase either the latency or decrease the bandwidth, which you see in the OC6 results with zero milliseconds and 20 milliseconds, Again, the application doesn't notice it at all, but now we have data starting to queue up in the right history log. And that terminology is an EVA term. It's um, just an area, location, where these IOs are queuing up, waiting to be replicated. And in that right history log, based on the workload I was running, you know, I had anywhere from 6 gigabytes to 17 gig uh, gigabytes of data sitting in that right history log waiting to be replicated. Now, the application's not affected by that, but your recovery point objective is definitely impacted because looking at worst case scenario, if my site disaster occurred right now, I have the potential of losing the last 17 gigabytes of data that were being processed in the database, whether or not that's an acceptable 
solution to you know, to you, of course, gets back to your recovery point objectives and your business environment. And then worst case scenario was the OC6 results with 100 millisecond latency. These results were, were crazy. I had over 100 gigabytes of data sitting in the right history log waiting to be replicated. Uh, of course, you can imagine worst case scenario with a disaster right at that point in time is a huge amount of data loss. And again, kind of why looking at 100 millisecond latency on your link may not be a prime candidate for replication in the first place. Um, but again, only the customer can decide that based on their business rules. So Tina, you, you suggested earlier that it's, it's sort of 20 milliseconds is the cutoff point between... You know, I wouldn't say the cutoff point, but according to my marketing data that we've seen, I've heard that around 90% of customers have about a 20 millisecond or less latency on that link. So by focusing on the 20 millisecond, we're, we're really getting a vast majority of the market. And it's kind of really hard to plan for these one-off cases where, yes, somebody has 50 milliseconds or 100 milliseconds latency. Can I do replication? Maybe, maybe not. You know, it's going to depend on a lot of factors, such as the bandwidth and your workload. So, so it sounds like 20 milliseconds is, is, is doable. Does have a question? Is that is that Josh? Yes. Hi, go ahead, Josh. Can you hear me? Yes. In from my experience in Europe, most of the synchronous remote copies are done up to a distance of twenty kilometers, sometimes even a little more. There's no point to make more than hundred kilometers. Now, on latency, there are several aspects in latency. There is a control unit, the, the primary control unit overhead, switch overhead, line latency, secondary overhead, and etc. In fact, the only factor that you can control is the distance. And this is the reason that, as I say, most of the, of the disaster recovery in Europe are for shorter distance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that uh, IBM tested, some other vendors tested, synchronous up to 100 and 200 kilometers with acceptable latency, but I seen that very well used in practice. Is there, does anybody know if there's a rule of thumb? In other words, you know, for, for every millisecond, you know, a millisecond of latency is added for every X number of miles over some kind of base, you know, let's say. There is no rule of thumb. There is a physical uh, rule. I wrote a research note on that. I just have to find that. But I think it's it's published. I I think that I wrote it in, when I was in Gartner, the, the, the myth and the reality on disaster recovery. And I put and, the figures. I don't remember. It's approximately a millisecond for every 200 kilometers traveled over dark fiber. Thank you. Who is that? Uh, this is Brad Katz. Brad Katz, thank you. So you said a millisecond for every 200 kilometers. Yep. But again, that's really dependent on a lot of the factors that um, the other person brought up, you know, the number of switches that it hits on the way, you know, line noise, a whole, a whole bunch of things. So on the other hand, in asynchronous, in asynchronous remote copy, you have to be careful where you store the data. Because if you're storing the, the changes in cache, 
you are choking the cash. And it will impact the, if you have any dis disruption on the line, it will choke the primary and will damage your, your performance. So it's very important to know how you do it. There are different ways, ways to do it. There is a way that you store in a side cache, and normally it will affect. There's another way that you store, you have a B-track maps, which you are only mark, or marking the tracks that should be, in this case, you will not impact the performance. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is what is important in uh, uh, in synchronous and asynchronous remote copy, and this is maybe the most important in disaster recovery, is data consistency. Now, data consistency, there are different ways way to, to keep that. If you are using synchronous remote copy, you have to build consistency group, which means if if I will take the Oracle uh, database, it should be all the volumes of the Oracle plus logs and everything that should be defined in one consistency group. Right, and, and that's actually – I'm sorry, that's actually a good point because I, I didn't have enough time to, to delve into all the details of my project, but I actually do cover in the white paper the specific ways to configure, we call it a, a data replication group, but the concept is the same of a consistency group because you need to preserve right ordering, and that is critical to the database application. This is the most important, in fact, because if you don't have, I know a case with garbage database which took three days to recover, and if you don't have clean cut of of uh, of database. You have to recover from from uh, tapes and etc. Okay, so uh, in synchronous remote copy, without consistency group or whatever how you call them, don't do remote copy. Now, a synchronous remote copy normally is creating consistency group because it's it's waiting, it's it's collecting groups of of uh, modification and then sending them to the recovery site. So it's, for some people it's easier than to start to work in consistency group. Okay, so a, 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 a data replication group or a data consistency group is, is a logical set of, of disks that could be virtual in a, in a remote replication relationship <laughs> with another set of, 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 of groups on another array, is that right? No, I will say this is a this is a clean cut status which kept the sequence of the updates the same as the primary site. Yeah. Okay. Because for example, if you will have on the recovery site, if the logs will be updated before the database will be, will be updated, then you have a corruption. Right, of right. course. So you have it's be, it's better to to cut and to have a clean cut, even if, if you lose some data, then trying to get to the latest, uh, to the latest uh, uh, change. This is the reason that I normally say that zero loss data does not exist. Near zero, zero okay. But oh. zero loss data does not exist in the mode copy. Uh, wow, I'm sorry. I completely disagree with that. 
Um, I do understand the points you're raising, and of course the consistency group is critical, and that is addressed in the white paper. You have to have the best practice is to have all of the LUNs that make up your application. In this case, it's an Oracle database. You want to place all of those LUNs into what we call a DR group. And then all of those LUNs are replicated over together. They fail over together. And the most critical part is they preserve right ordering. So when yes, one bid comes down the line on the primary array, it's the exact same order it's going to come down on the destination site. And so that is um, obviously the most important aspect, especially in synchronous replica uh, replication. So you're saying to yes, create I, uh, I uh, did I get that right? You're saying create a couple of groups with multiple LUNs for the database? And, and right, and then put all of those LUNs into a single DR group. That's the HP best practice. Now in my white paper, I show you a couple ways you can deviate from that and the reasons why you might. But it's still critical to keep your online redo logs and your data files within the same DR group because those have to have the right order preservation within those set of files. And then your backup files, which are kind of separate, um, your RMAN backups, your archive logs, those could be in a second DR group. And they're going to preserve right ordering within that DR group. But if you just want the simplest solution and the best practice, it would be to put all of those lines into a single DR group. And, and how, how do you balance performance with those multiple DR groups? Um, well, it, it's easy if you are replicating multiple applications. If you're replicating multiple applications, maybe you have multiple databases, maybe you're replicating an Oracle database and an Exchange server. You would put each of those applications into their own DR group and then balance them across the EBA controllers, and that's going to help you get a balanced workload on the array. If you're, are, if you're replicating only one thing, then that's where I delve into the alternative configurations of using two DR groups for an application. Um, again, there's reasons to do it. Um, the simplest solution is a single DR group. Okay, so you might choose one or two depending on the number of applications that you're using. Right, the right. number of applications you need to replicate. Okay. And normally you you combine all the all the lands which belongs to the to application in a group. Right, right. That's just what we said. You don't have to. Okay, in some cases, some customers they want to keep consistency between applications as well. In banking, it is important, but most of the customers is enough to have. Consistency groups for per application. Exactly, and and you know that helps that preserves the right ordering, which is critical in your recovery. Okay, and all right. So we have just a couple of minutes left here before we have to summarize. Any other uh, advice you would give specifically to storage administrators, which is you know the primary audience here? Um, let me. I think about some of the things we've talked about. So for you know, from the storage administrator's perspective, you know, first and foremost is how are you carving up the EVA for your database to get best performance or optimal you know, optimal performance with some redundancy and recovery. I'm using maybe one or two DR um groups, disk groups on the array. And then you know, the the big things, and there's some things I didn't talk about. I don't know if we have a, a lot of DBAs on the phone, but 
uh, one example, you would not be replicating the OCR in the voting disk if you're in an Iraq environment. You're going to have your rack pre-staged at the destination site, and it's going to have its own OCR and voting disk. Something else we, I don't know if we delved into it a lot, but it's in my white paper, and this is, again, sort of a DBA thing, but it affects the performance, is the sizing of the online redo lots. Now, that's actually proved to be very interesting in the results because if you undersize your online redo logs, so you make them really small and they're switching very frequently, we found that they have a slight performance degradation when you're doing replication. If you oversize your redo logs, so you make them huge and they're switching, you know, however frequently, once every hour or something, we found that to have a, a fairly significant performance impact when doing replication because when that log switch occurs, in our case, our concept of oversizing was a four gigabyte online redo log. So when that log switch occurs, that's four gigabytes of write data that has to be replicated all of a sudden. And that's, you know, a fairly significant amount of data at one particular point in time. And we found that to decrease the overall performance of the database when doing a replication solution. So believe it or not, there is a sort of a sweet spot that your online redo logs should be sized at, and it's only going to be dependent on your workload that you're running. In our particular scenario, it happened to be around 2 gigabytes. So our online redo logs, when they were sized at 2 gigabytes, actually gave us the best performance when we were doing replication. Okay, excellent. All right, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Um, we don't have time to, to, to delve into another uh, uh, vector here, but uh, let me just make sure that uh, in, the, in the spirit of follow-up, is there anything that, that the community wants us to see you know, covered that we didn't have time to cover here or something that you know, you'd like to see us write about post this call? Um, and more importantly, would you be interested in my Phase 2 project? This is where I do the actual failover and fail-back scenarios. This is where I crash the database, zero data loss and synchronous replication, varying amounts of data loss and asynchronous, and you're going, you can physically see it. And then, of course, we also have some fun with links to spins and resumes and the effect they're going to have on your database performance. Yeah, we've already put some feelers out on that one, and, and there's a great deal of interest in the, in the failover, failback, because it's a bit on the edge um, in and terms of And this is Nick. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to see all of that then with a graded mode. I'm sorry, with a what? Graded mode. Graded mode. Where you have lost um, controller, or half a controller. Oh, I see what you're saying, in a degraded scenario. This particular testing it took place with full-blown EVA disaster crashes. My poor EVA is probably really tired of being powered off over 100 times. No, no, but that's a, that's a <laughs> DR, you lost the site. I'm talking yeah. about a controller is overloaded or, running or it's unhappy or the microcode has gone into a loop. And right, and you're running on one controller. Rolling in one controller. That's actually very interesting because, of course, you're going to be in a very degraded solution um, until you can get that controller fixed. That might be a test scenario that we could address in the future. Thank you. Okay. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and, and I have to summarize. I'd ask that, uh, first of all, Tina, thank you very much for your time and your insights today. It was, it was excellent. Let me ask 
Well, actually, before we summarize, I want to let everybody know that the next Peer Insight is going to be in three weeks on May 27th. At least four Wikibon members are going to be at uh, EMC World the prior week, and we'll be summarizing our findings and analysis from that customer event. And if, the, if there's anybody on the call uh, that, that plans on being there, let me know, david.volante at wikibon.org. We'd love to sit down with you and meet with you at the event. Um, I also, so Tina mentioned that she's working on the, the, the next uh, 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 project, Failover and Failback. We'd love to invite you back once that's done. Uh, I'll follow up or let me know when, when you're ready and, and we can schedule that. Um, okay, so thanks also, in addition to Tina, John Blackman, um, appreciate your, your comments, uh, Josh Krischer, uh, Brad Katz, and, uh, and Nick Allen. So in terms of a title for this piece, uh, best practices in Oracle 11G remote replication, uh, an EVA, HP EVA example. I mean, I, I don't know if this is one that's conducive for uh, for pithy titles, but I think that summarizes it accurately. Do you guys agree? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, it would be pretty agnostic to any hardware-based array-based replication. But but yeah, that's a pretty yeah. good solution. Hey, David, can I make one last plug? I do want to let any of our HP customers know that I'll be presenting at HP Storage Works. Tech Forum. This is in Las Vegas in June, and this is the project I just um, did a quick discussion on here. It's actually one of the focus projects I'll be presenting there. So if the HP customers are interested in that, by all means, look me up in June. Excellent. Okay, that's June. Do you know the date offhand? Or? Yes, the Tech Forum is the 16th through the 19th of June. Okay. Good. Excellent. All right, I'd ask that uh, folks just put themselves on mute, if you would, and I'll, and I'll summarize. Okay, this is Dave Vellante, and it's uh, the May 6, 2008 Peer Insight Storage Research Meeting. And today we talked about best practices in Oracle 11G remote replication. And we used an HP EVA example presented by Tina Rose. And here's the summary. Back in uh, late 2007, HP's CFT group initiated a project to uh, understand the best way to configure an 11G database on the e HP EVA array uh, for replication. Uh, the goal was to share best practices with customers for the major pieces of the deployment, specifically the servers, storage, interconnect, the database itself, et cetera. And HP wanted to understand how, how various replication methods, e.g. synchronous versus asynchronous, um, were affected as a function of bandwidth, uh, latency, and, and, and distance, and how that affected overall application behavior. So the basic premise of this meeting, uh, I think uh, the customer should evaluate, is that by taking advantage of HP's effort here, and leveraging the recommendations, they can make better technology choices for their specific environments, and optimize performance and speed implementation and, and cut costs and reduce implementation risks. Uh, and this type of information is very helpful in that regard. Uh, Tina reviewed the specific project where HP replicated data between two EVAs that were connected over FCIP, and uh, the A site ran an 11G rack database uh, using uh, ASM, Automatic Storage Management, uh, and this was replicated uh, to a single instance 11G using ASM at the B site. Uh, 
and then following best practices and, and tuning the database, it's our understanding that, that HP was able to get an additional 16% performance out of the OLT workload that was tested. Uh, for recovery reasons, HP configured uh, two EVAs and two ASM disk groups uh, with the primary online files in the first group and backup files in the second group. And HP used the configuration with uh, uh, 168, 146 gigabyte uh, disk devices spinning at 15K and configured each one with RAID 1, although Tina indicated that the backup disk group was comprised of only 32 physical devices because the backup data is accessed far less frequently and, and could, in theory, be configured using more cost-effective RAID 5 or lower spin speed devices. Uh, in terms of best practice, one critical finding of this project uh, that came out of this was the recommendation that customers should evaluate several key attributes to understand their recovery goals and, and business objectives. And Tina took us through um, discussions of, of RPO, recovery point objective, RTO, um, i.e. the maximum time to recover from a primary site failure, uh, uh, recommended that customers understand the bandwidth of the inner site link and other traffic contention for that connection, latency, i.e. the round trip delay on the replication link, and very importantly, the workload, and specifically the write intensity of the, the application, and also its peaks and, and valleys. So understanding these business and, and technical attributes is going to naturally lead to a, or potentially lead to the correct choice of replication technology. Uh, let's see. In order to ensure successful recovery, customers were advised to separate database files into two groups on the array, um, specifically two array groups and two ASM groups. And as it related to performance, the choice of replication technology had significant performance impacts that customers need to understand. In particular, the amount of data pushed through the link and the link bandwidth and the associated latencies could dramatically and sometimes detrimentally affect performance in a synchronous environment. And Tina showed us data where asynchronous replication actually maintained its performance as the latencies increased. But of course, the drawback there is you're going to create greater exposure to data loss as, as writes queue up in the, in, in, in the write log. So the Wikibon community would suggest that, that for Oracle 10G or 11G replication environments, prior to acquiring technology, customers should access HP's and other vendors' test data to determine the configuration that best meets the requirement. And we will provide links to uh, HP's specific uh, technical documentation and white paper in that regard. Uh, Basic tuning allowed HP to improve OLTP workload performance by around 15%, uh, and as well, uh, choosing the appropriate bandwidth for your workload is fundamental. As an example, HP saw a 17% improvement in application performance when, a, when, when upgrading the link from OC6 to OC9. Uh, HP's findings suggest that uh, synchronous replication uh, can be spec'd for latencies of 20 milliseconds or less, assuming sufficient bandwidth, so as not to negatively impact application performance. And the rule of thumb that came out of the call was that uh, a millisecond of latency is added for every 200 kilometers using dark fiber. 
over some base minimum. And of course, there's a warning there that your mileage will vary depending on the number of switches, switches and, and, and other noise and, and contention. In addition, uh, Tina laid out some specific guidelines for storage administrators uh, with some help from some others in the community. Uh, one, create at least two disk groups with multiple LUNs for the database. Uh, second, data consistency is an important or, matter of fact, the most important attribute. So create one or two uh, data replication groups or consistency groups depending upon the number of applications being replicated. And it balance multiple data replication groups across controllers to ensure adequate performance. And then, of course, ensure the link between sites has adequate bandwidth for the workload being replicated. Action item. HPCFT initiative and those like it represent some of the best customer freebies in the business. Based on real-world customer-initiated implementations, these best practice guidelines can save substantial time and money and help users avoid critical mistakes. Storage executives managing projects should ask technical staff three questions. One, are such best practices available and have you read them? Two, are they being followed? And three, where are you deviating and why? All right, thanks everybody and we'll see you in a few weeks. Bye for now.